This program is brought to you by Stanford University. Please visit us at stanford.edu. Let me welcome you to this lecture by Samantha Power as part of our Arrow series on ethics and leadership. The series honors Kenneth Arrow, Professor Emeritus and Nobel Laureate in Economics and longtime supporter of ethics initiatives at Stanford, who is with us this evening. He joins me in expressing our enormous honor to host Samantha Power, the Anna Lynn Professor of Practice of Global Leadership and Public Policy Practice based at the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy at Harvard's John F. Kennedy School of Government. Her previous book, A Problem from Hell, America in the Age of Genocide, won the 2003 Pulitzer Prize for General Nonfiction, the National Book Critics Award Circle for General Nonfiction, and several other honors. In 2007, Power became a foreign policy columnist at Time Magazine. And prior to that point, she covered wars in the former Yugoslavia as a reporter for the U.S. News and World Report, the Boston Globe, and the New Republic. She's been a working journalist for an extended period, reporting from such places as Burundi, East Timor, Kosovo, Rwanda, Sudan, and Zimbabwe, and contributing to the Atlantic Monthly, The New Yorker, and The New York Review of Books. Power is an, the editor with Graham Allison of Realizing Human Rights, Moving from Inspiration to Impact. She's a graduate of Yale University and the Harvard Law School. She moved to the United States from Ireland at age nine, and she spent 2005 to 2006 working in the office of Senator Barack Obama on foreign policy issues. Her new book, Chasing the Flame, is a biography of a UN envoy killed by a suicide bomber in Iraq in 2003. Her narrative chronicles questions of who possesses the moral authority, political sense, and military and economic leverage to protect human life and bring peace to an increasingly unruly global culture. In a review of Chasing the Flame in last Sunday's New York Times, Francis Fukuyama suggested that her chronicle is a good place to begin a serious debate about the proper way to manage world order. We're truly honored that she's joined with all of us tonight to be part of that debate. She'll speak for about a half an hour, then answer questions. Uh, we'll have a lineup at the mic for those of you who have uh, issues you'd like to raise. And then following that, she'll do some book signing in the anteroom of Kresge. Kresge. Please join me now in welcoming Samantha Powell. glad that's the part of the Fukuyama review that you focused on. <laughs> there were other parts. Um, it's great to be here at Stanford. Uh, I was waitlisted at Stanford. I hate Stanford. Um, <laughs> just for the record. <laughs> um, no, I love Stanford, and I'm still envious of you who go here. Um, I uh, wrote this book <clears throat> about Sergio Verdamello for uh, a few reasons that I just thought I would share with you before I talk about what his life meant to me anyway, and what I think the lessons of his life are for contemporary American foreign policy and citizenship. Um, there are two um, aspects of my experience with the last book that I did, which is called A Problem from Hell on American Responses to Genocide, um, uh, that sort of, I think, converged to bring me to this place this evening to talk about Sergio. 
The first is um, what I think is perhaps the most important scene in, in the last book, A Problem from Hell, um, which is a scene on April 21st, 1994, um, uh, which those of you who uh, know about the Rwandan genocide know is just a couple weeks into the Rwandan genocide. The New York Times is describing 200 to 300,000 people already exterminated in Rwanda by April 21st. And a congresswoman uh, from Colorado, Patricia Schroeder, steps up to a podium like this one and has a back and forth with a group of journalists. And one of the journalists asks, what's up here? Papers are reporting 200,000 people killed uh, in Rwanda, and the Congress is doing almost nothing. The Clinton administration is doing almost nothing, but the Congress, no hearings, no denunciation, no trips over to the White House, no people being chained to lampposts and being arrested for uh, civil disobedience, nothing, just silence, basically all system silence. And what Patricia Schroeder said, which I think is so very important, partly because it's so very honest, is she said, you know, it's a great question. I, I, I don't know. I'm getting all these phone calls to my office in Colorado and to my office in Washington about the endangered ape and gorilla population, but nobody's calling about the people. Um, so, to me, this was just a revelatory moment in, in global history, um, certainly in the history of genocide and even in the history of American foreign policy, because it revealed something deeply true and deeply important, and that is that there, uh, while there were uh, endangered species groups that had been become operational, and those of you who were part of them, I'm sure, are frustrated with their lack of impact on policy and so forth, but they had the capacity to leap into action uh, at a time when apes and gorillas were endangered, there was no comparable endangered people's movement. Um, Nothing comparable, nothing politicized and operational in that way. So that was interesting in its own right. That was back in 1994. But what ended up, if you fast forward and you look to 2003 to 2004, you will actually see that, lo and behold, in the United States of America, an endangered people's movement came into existence. Now, it's not perfect, and it's not hugely sophisticated. It's not as skilled as the NRA um, uh, or other very effective lobbies. Um, but what it has done is actually made a profound difference in our public discourse on the question of mass atrocity and genocide. And, of course, what it has done is it has channeled its energy toward Darfur, and we can talk in the discussion period a little bit more about that. But suffice it to say, it's student groups um, on campuses like this one, evangelicals, Jewish groups, and other people recognizing after a grim uh, century that if we are to make never again operational, um, it requires actual uh, domestic political pressure on political leaders, that, that governments do not gravitate, democracies do not gravitate toward these kinds of issues nat- naturally or eagerly. And they have to be, in a sense, made to gravitate. So that's um, the movement, and that's the good news. And, but the bad news is that movement has hit something of a, a, a brick wall, um, uh, partly because of the uh, discrediting of the Bush administration as a result of Guantanamo and Abu Ghraib and, and the war in Iraq and so forth. Um, so there is an erosion of U.S. influence in the international system that makes it harder to do one-stop shopping when it comes to human rights. You can't just protest to the U.S. government, make the U.S. government pay attention, and then expect the U.S. government to just go and snap its fingers and make something happen internationally. Um, but partly also because the movement, such as it is, and I use the word very, very loosely, is confined within this country. You actually don't see this kind of citizen activism around international security 
threats or domestic security threats like mass atrocity, you don't see this, this um, analog in other democracies. And thus, um, on, the, on the occasions where the Bush administration does spasm kind of in response to domestic pressure and does show up in an international institution looking for resources from others, it has tended to go ignored for both reasons, both, again, because of this administration's particular um, lack of summoning power in international institutions um, and the, I mean, it should be said just manifestly, the difficulty that any administration would have being um, for waterboarding on a Monday and against genocide on a Tuesday and then on a Wednesday showing up at an international institution and getting what it wants on, a, on, on the issue of mass atrocity or genocide. I mean, it's just a, a, actually structurally difficult. But also, the other countries that one might count upon, conceivably, to take ownership of some of these questions, either for domestic reasons or because a leader in another country would press for such ownership, that leadership is lacking. And so what we have is um, a security gap, uh, a policing gap, a peacekeeping gap or void in the international system right now. And we have a very large number of civilians in Darfur and in other places uh, paying a price. So this is one strand that's in the kind of back of my mind as I begin to work on this book on Sergio, which I'll get to here in just a second. But the second is um, uh, so sort of international system and this void and wanting to understand how states' resources can be mobilized in service of um, humanitarian and security challenges that cross borders um, or that will never be owned by one government acting alone. Um, I mean, part of the conceit of the creation of the UN was that even though an issue like a Darfur, though nobody was conceiving of it uh, quite so vividly, would never necessarily command full the full attention of a single government, maybe what you could do is you could just get enough residual interest from enough countries within the UN, initially, whatever it was, 60, 61 countries, or 51 countries, I think, when it started, now 192 countries, that maybe you could just aggregate enough of a little bit of interest from each country, and then that would be enough to actually bring about a, a, a meaningful commitment. So part, one of the questions in the back of my mind was, how can that, those residual interests be gathered and, and can uh, a meaningful uh, political, diplomatic, economic, and maybe even military or peacekeeping response be mustered? The second thing going on in the back of my mind, um, uh, probably without realizing it in retrospect, but was um, a little bit of an impatience with um, all of the talk about 21st century challenges, global challenges, threats and challenges that cross borders, um, not an impatience with that idea. It's manifestly true that the central challenges on the horizon are largely you know, public health calamities across borders, global warming, um, terrorists, nuclear proliferators. I mean, a lot of issues that, that manifestly do cross borders. But a sense that most of our tools for thinking about global challenges were very statist, and they were very 20th century, or even very 19th century. Um, and uh, our views of what success would look like in the 21st century seem rooted in some vague idea that, that it would look like success had once looked in a, in a prior century with very different challenges. Um, our views of what statesmanship looked like um, were still rooted in the idea that it would be, in a sense, a head of state or a leader of a particular country. Um, and it just struck me that there was a disconnect between our models of success, our models of leadership, and the kinds of challenges we were all beginning to acknowledge were the primary challenges on the horizon. Now, when I went around the, the country um, talking about 
American responses to genocide and so forth, and, and or even more recently uh, critiquing American foreign policy and some of the ways that it was um, that it is structured and some of the kind of uh, the, the, the the systematic ways in which it excludes consideration of human consequences. There was always somebody in the back of an auditorium like this one who would hear me out and and agree basically with most of what I said about American foreign policy or about uh, d- domestic politics and and how it tends not to uh, or had never really tended to mobilize around uh, distant victims. So they would sort of concede that and then they'd raise their hand and they'd say, "Yeah, but I mean, okay, the U.S. We know about the U.S. Of course, that's America. You know, what do you expect? Special interests, national interests, domestic political interests. It all makes sense." But what about the UN? Isn't the UN the answer? I mean, and shouldn't the UN have dealt with Rwanda? Shouldn't the UN deal with Darfur? And um, I'm sure many of you agree with that idea, and and, um, I agree with that idea in an ideal world. But the trouble with that mode of thinking is that it only replicates the question at a larger institutional, structural, geopolitical level. It still replicates that same question as to how a government or a set of individuals can be convinced to take ownership uh, or make an investment in dealing with something that it is, doesn't gravitate toward naturally or eagerly. And enter Sergio. <laughs> what I wanted to do was with Sergio, um, who died in August of 2003 in the first ever um, uh, attack in Iraq on a civilian target, the first terrorist attack on a civilian target, the first major suicide bomb attack in Iraq, to somehow look, look at the life of a UN official, perhaps the most able uh, official in the history of the United Nations, to open up the system, the global system, uh, the system that could conceivably be a 21st century system, but that of course has rules and habits and history uh, very much rooted in the 20th century. And so who is this guy, Sergio, apart from uh, someone who was blown up, sadly, tragically, in August of 2003, He was a Brazilian uh, diplomat. Um, He was the son of a Brazilian diplomat uh, who worked in the Brazilian foreign ministry, the father did, um, until the military regime, the military junta, took over in 1965. And soon after it took over, it forced Mr. Vieira de Mello, Sergio's father, into an early retirement. Now, this was something that Sergio took very personally, took very seriously, And what it convinced him of at a very young age is that he would never work for Brazil. It also convinced him that politics um, were not to be trusted, that states were not to be trusted. He developed a whole worldview around what had been done to his father and to his family. Now, when his dad had been in the Foreign Service, Sergio had traveled, he'd learned languages, he spoke seven languages by the age of 22. Um, Not bad. Um, And so he was a natural to become a diplomat. Uh, But he vowed and was very resolute even until he died that he would never work for Brazil after what they had done to his father. Um, he was, uh, went to university in the wake of the, the military coup um, in Brazil. The universities were shoddy and, and very disrupted studying. He was a very serious student. So he decided to go to university in Paris at the Sorbonne. Uh, In 1968, uh, at the age of 20, he became uh, caught up in the riots, threw stones at Parisian police, was a card-carrying leftist, card-carrying anti-imperialist. As he used to say, he wore his leftism loudly. 
uh, if he saw an American car uh, driving uh, down the streets of Paris, he would bend over and pretend as if he was picking up stones and, and make the mock motion of throwing stones at an American car. If he heard an American accent, he would walk away from the table very ostentatiously, saying imperialists. Um, uh, in a very youthful way, he again wore his leftism uh, loudly. What's, what's amazing, though, and, and this, I think, captures some of the dualism of the UN uh, that, is, that one needs to, I think, pay careful attention to, is that at the age of 21, when he finished his undergraduate work in, in, at the Sorbonne, and it came time to choosing a profession, when he thought about where to go and where to channel his idealism and his leftism, the first place he thought about was the United Nations. And the dualism in the United Nations, of course, is as follows. Number one, the UN is the place where uh, the major powers and arguably the world's peoples park their ideals. It's the place where we enshrine attention to human dignity and to fundamental freedoms, to self-determination, of course, also to sovereignty. But the whole set of principles, all the international treaties and so forth, for the most part, get negotiated right there at the UN. And those are the treaties meant to hold states accountable and meant to, meant to stop states from falling prey to their lesser angels, as Lincoln might have said. Um, basically, th this is where we put the rules in, in, in play um, in the hopes that it will curb the worst practices uh, carried out by states and even these days non-state actors. So that's in part what the UN is. But of course, so it's in a, in a way the constraint on state power. And you can understand why Sergio, a 21-year-old anti-imperialist, would be drawn to that part of the United Nations. But as soon as he got there, he realized that the UN was something else. It was this gathering of states. It was, in fact, the embodiment. It was the accretion, the aggregation of all the state power in the world was just in one place. It was a nightmare for somebody like him. Everywhere he went, there were states and more states and diplomats and more diplomats and limousines and more limousines. And it was that dualism that he uh, lived with uh, his entire career and his entire life, was somehow figuring out how you convince the states who are gathered there to adhere to this set of principles that were put there in order to bind states, but they were put in place on the recognition that states couldn't be trusted to adhere to them on their own. And yet this little quite slender civil service within the UN was somehow meant to be the kind of independent keeper of the flame, uh, arguably, of, of these principles, and, and was meant to be people like Sergio and like the Secretary General and people who work in the Department of Peacekeeping, people who give out vaccinations or do elections or pass out humanitarian aid. They were somehow to be, they were the people promoting the values in the UN Charter, but there's very little they could do without going back, begging bowl in hand to the very member states uh, that they knew deep down sort of couldn't be trusted to uh, necessarily think in terms of the commons to begin with. If they could be trusted, then one wouldn't have needed the principles in the first place. In any event, Sergio joined the UN with all of this complexity um, at the age of 21 in 1969. And what I knew him in life, I met him in 1994 and, and became friendly with him, not, not hugely um, close to him over the years, but stayed in touch. And when I was introduced to him, um, I was told in advance that this was a man who was a cross between... James Bond on the one hand and Bobby Kennedy on the other. And I thought, wow, that's not, I got to meet this guy. And, and that's not something, those aren't qualities or names one associates necessarily with UN civil servants um, very often. Um, what I didn't realize until I worked on this book for the last four years and reconstructed his life as best I could was the degree to which in his 34-year UN career he moved 
almost linearly with the headlines. So wherever the world's attention was oriented, Sergio tended to be there. Um, in, uh, in the early 1970s, wars of decolonization and independence were all the rage uh, in the world and were breaking out left and right. Um, Sergio was sent to Bangladesh, his first field mission in 1972, dealing with the uh, outflow um, from what was then, uh, uh, I guess, you know, what would become Bangladesh, what was then Pakistan, uh, two million people, three million people, then dealing with sending them home. He referred to himself in those days as a grocery delivery, deliverer, a grocery deliverer, which in some ways reflected his very early understanding that humanitarian aid was just a, a Band-Aid or a grocery. It wasn't a, a structural uh, fix. It wasn't a durable fix for what was wrong. After Bangladesh, he went to Sudan, where the civil war was breaking out. The civil war we're still living with to this day. He then went to Cyprus, where the Turkish invasion had just occurred, and he was dealing with the displacement uh, of Greeks and Turks going in both directions. Um, then he went to Mozambique, where he dealt with the War of Independence and the new uh, Mozambican uh, post-colonial government, the influx of uh, Zimbabweans or Rhodesians uh, into Mozambique, caring for them. Um, one of the most important missions of his life, and I think an important turning point, which I'll come to in just a second, was came in, came in 1981 when he was deployed to southern Lebanon. And in southern Lebanon, you had then what you have now as well, which is something called UNIFIL, the UN uh, mission in southern Lebanon. And it's basically a UN buffer peacekeeping force uh, that uh, set up shop on the southern Lebanese border with Israel. Now, back then, as now, now it's um, Hezbollah that's doing it. Back then, it was Palestinians um, and PLO uh, fighters and so forth, but would use the UN buffer um, uh, basically as a kind of hiding ground. They would hide out behind UN lines and, and circumvent UN lines to go into northern Israel and, and carry out raids. The Israelis responded uh, in the mid-1970s by invading uh, southern Lebanon, and uh, that, that happened, I should say, before the UN was deployed. So first the Israeli invasion took place, then the UN came in, and when Sergio was there in 82, the Israelis invaded a second time and trampled uh, the UN base and the UN buffer that was in its way. Sergio, the young, strapping um, keeper of the flame and... and uh, anti-imperialist, anti-statist, um, went storming up to an Israeli general and said, what you have just done is unacceptable. You have just violated international law. You've crossed an international border. And this Israeli uh, tank commander just looked at him and said, you think this is unacceptable? You should see the 50 tanks that are on the road behind me. Now that's unacceptable. Um, and Sergio said from that point on, he would never use the word unacceptable again. Um, which I think is telling and, and in, in a range of ways and, and is a reflection of how, in some ways, following in his footsteps is, it's almost like the education of an idealist or the education of a particular individual who had a set of ideals. But the battering that his ideals take when put in practice, when put in confrontation with state power is, is I think, very, very telling. In 1989, the wall falls, or oh, I should say, uh, back to the uh, Lebanon posting. In 83, he's in Beirut when the U.S. Embassy is hit by the first uh, suicide bomber in, in U.S. history. And then, of course, uh, soon thereafter, the Marine barracks are hit, which prior to 9-11 was the largest attack, largest uh, terrorist attack on American civilians. 1989, the wall falls. He leaves Lebanon in 83. He goes back to Geneva. The wall falls in 89. He's the person sent to go and negotiate with the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia. 
again, how you can't even make this life up. How does this happen that he's sort of everywhere um, the news is and everywhere the, the new generation of harm doers uh, are? Um, in uh, the after he's in Cambodia for two and a half years, facilitates the return of 350,000 refugees from the Thai-Cambodian uh, border to Cambodia proper. He's the first international civil servant to negotiate with the Khmer Rouge, manages to charm them somehow and extract concessions from them in a way that nobody else, I think, could have. Um, then, of course, in the 90s, the issue of the day is ethnic conflict, sectarian, the beginnings of the stirrings of the sectarian conflict. He's the guy sent to Bosnia, uh, where I met him. Um, he's then sent to Rwanda uh, just in the aftermath of the genocide. And this is one of, the, I think, the most uh, taxing chapters of his uh, storied career. He has to figure out, what do you do with the genocidaire who've been responsible for the extermination of 800,000 Tutsi, who have flown, uh, fled into neighboring countries, into Congo, into Tanzania? If you're in charge of feeding them, what do you do? If, you, if, if you've put them on international life support, not the genocidaire, but the, there's two million people have fled into those neighboring countries, probably 100,000 of them have blood on their hands. So if you're Sergio, do you turn off the spigot of international life support um, in the hopes that that will then drain the swamp, that the genocidaire will have no choice but to flee, go back to Rwanda maybe, where they'll be arrested, or go deeper into the jungle? Or maybe by turning off the spigot, the civilians who have no blood on their hands will go back to Rwanda, and that will leave only the guilty uh, behind. Or are you afraid of doing that? Because what you know will happen is, in fact, the civilians will run with the genocidaire into the jungle and conceivably all die. This is the kind of Sophie's choice um, that Sergio had to, had to grapple with. And, of course, the answer that he came up with was, well, I want to have the genocidaire arrested. That's the important thing. We need to separate the sheep from the wolves. So let us go door-to-door in the international system and get the member states who feel so guilty about what has happened in Rwanda to give us the police and give us the mechanisms to go and actually make these arrests. Well, I don't have to do a show of hands as to how many people think that the same international community, the same member states who had done nothing about the genocide were suddenly going to become eager to go and spend time with the genocidaire. There were no takers um, for this offer. And so what Sergio ended up doing is a, a very awkward dance between kind of turning off some of the spigot of life support in the hopes that some people moved, but arguably by keeping these camps afloat, doing more harm than good. In the late 90s, nation building was the talk of the day, not in this country, of course, um, but in the, in the overall, in the international system. And Sergio was the person sent first to Kosovo in 1999 to be the viceroy. Totally surreal experience for him as the anti-imperialist to be the person put in charge of actually running a province, not then a country, as it may be now today. We don't know if it's a country or not um, currently, but he was the person put in charge. Suddenly, the same guy who'd railed against state power was the person deciding how the garbage collection would be done, what the currency should be, what the flag should be, what tax policy should be, um, having never lived in Kosovo before. After Kosovo, he was sent to East Timor to do virtually the same thing, although for much longer. He ran East Timor for two and a half years. And then uh, after East Timor, he finished in, in uh, 2002. Uh, 9-11 has happened in the meantime, and he's named by Kofi Annan, UN High Commissioner for Human Rights. So at that point, he's the guy figuring out what you do with George Bush. When you have an administration that has set up a network of detention facilities of the kind that we know existed then, um, when there is the stirrings of a war in Iraq, um, you're the human rights commissioner. 
you know that the Bush administration is very uh, uh, sort of uh, down on the UN to begin with. George Bush is actually taunting UN diplomats that it is the League of Nations to come. It is being is becoming irrelevant. It's not enforcing its own re- resolutions. There's a taunt going on. Um, it's very reluctant to pay its dues. It's not it's not interested in in supporting peacekeeping. It's abrogating a whole number of international treaties. <clears throat> what do you do if you're Sergio? Do you denounce that, or do you actually somehow try to get in the room with George Bush and convince him of the error of his ways. Sergio opted for the latter course um, and actually met with uh, the president. He was the first UN Human Rights Commissioner to meet with George Bush um, or actually to meet with any American president. And amazingly, his gifts for diplomacy were such um, that he managed to charm the president. And actually, I think Bush developed something of a a guy crush on, on Sergio, which was easy to do. They talked about their workout regimens. This was two weeks before the war in Iraq. Um, And Sergio, in in the way that he does, uh, came in and and actually began the meeting by almost boasting about his shoot-to-kill policy uh, that he had put in place in East Timor to go after the militants, the militia who were undermining the peace there. He found a way to try to find common ground in ways that um, uh, human rights advocates found very disturbing. This was the human rights commissioner talking about his shoot-to-kill policy in East Timor. But the consequence of that meeting, tragically, is that Bush um, began to admire uh, Sergio, talk to colleagues about Sergio, and after the U.S. invasion had occurred and it came time to choose a U.N. envoy to go to Iraq, um, the only person that Bush could talk about was this Sergio Villardamello. Now, Sergio uh, himself had very little appetite uh, for going to Iraq. He was just ending a 30-year marriage, um, uh, he'd been a James Bond, um, I guess Bobby Kennedy, uh, figure um, for a long time, and uh, was finally settling down with a woman who was putting his personal life first for the first time. Um, second, he was the human rights community was very skeptical about him. Uh, for the students here, you know, there's some concepts like human rights and humanitarianism and peace and justice. They all sound like sort of synonyms. But what you learn when you walk with Sergio is the degree to which these concepts are often at cross-purposes with one another. And so even though Sergio was known as a great humanitarian for feeding people, he was often willing to muzzle his criticism of a regime, of their human rights performance, in the interest of actually supplying humanitarian aid. So he knew that he needed to shore up his credibility with the human rights community, was reluctant to leave his job as human rights commissioner to go to Iraq. But moreover, he felt that the Bush administration was not serious that they weren't actually ready to hear uh, UN advice, even the most technical advice that he had to bring to bear. Uh, He thought that it would be a degrading experience, not only for him personally, but for the UN as a whole, to go to Iraq at a time where the Americans weren't themselves eager uh, to hear advice. He thought the day would come when the Americans, in fact, would be ripe to hear advice because he did not think the post-war occupation uh, would go well. But when Sergio was asked by Kofi Annan to go to Iraq, he, having asked to not be asked. <laughs> Once he was asked, he felt he had no choice but to go. And on August 19th, uh, 2003, after a series of um, uh, engagements with Bremer, which we can talk about in the discussion, um, and which I've written about in The New Yorker and, and, and of course, in the book, but um, uh, Sergio was sitting in his office when a suicide bomber pulled up right outside his office and um, detonated uh, himself and the truck that he was traveling in. Twenty. Two people were killed, including Sergio. Um, but the, to add tragedy to tragedy, Sergio was in fact alive for three and a half hours under the rubble. 
And uh, what is most outrageous uh, about the way that he died is, um, for starters, he died almost as a refugee, the same person who'd given his life to try to deal with all these broken places and broken people, died without any single country owning his fate under the rubble. If you work for the UN, you work for everyone, and therefore, on some level, you work actually almost for nobody. But more outrageous even than that, or tragic than that, is that the United States, having predicated the war in part on a link between Saddam Hussein's regime and terrorism and 9-11 or al-Qaeda, amazingly, no preparation had been done in the U.S. war plan to respond to large-scale terrorist attacks on civilian targets. So when the Canal Hotel, the U.N. headquarters, was hit, everything that happened was ad hoc, Uh, Some of it was heroic. I mean, some of the individual Americans who put their lives at risk and went down into the shaft, into the rubble to try to rescue Sergio, um, performed in ways that, you know, I mean, none of us can imagine uh, the kind of bravery that was at work that day. But they had no heavy equipment to rely upon, no uh, what are called jaws of life, kind of cutting equipment that would be used to cut the concrete that was on top of Sergio as he talked to people, as he talked to these Americans who, who uh, tried to rescue him. Um, the two in particular, two EMTs, um, uh, well, one fireman, one EMT, who were with him in the shaft, um, because they had no, not even shoring wood uh, was part. I mean, again, if you had thought about terrorist attacks and collapsed buildings and the like, you would have had a lot of shoring equipment. But they didn't have shoring equipment. So one of the soldiers actually turned himself into a kind of human beam as a way of stabilizing the hole that Sergio was in, because the rubble kept, sort of, every time they would lift rubble, more would fall down on top of both Sergio and the person at the bottom of the shaft who was trying to rescue him. And, um, but so that this was the ad hoc plywood, was, was a one-man plywood. Um, but what, all they had to actually uh, transport the rubble, because they had no cranes or anything like that in a timely fashion to the scene of the crime, was a lady's handbag that they'd found in one of the offices of the Canal Hotel, one of those basket kind of handbags. And then what they used in, in again, a makeshift MacGyver-like pulley system was a curtain rope from one of the uh, offices. And then what they used as a stretcher was the curtain itself. So the most powerful military in the history of mankind was reduced to trying to rescue probably the greatest civil servant nation builder, diplomat, trouble, you know, troubleshooter, problem solver in the history of the UN system with a lady's handbag, a curtain rope, and uh, a curtain. And that, again, is there are many, many reasons um, to be unhappy about the way that our foreign policy has unfolded. But the disconnect between justification and implementation uh, again and again is truly disturbing. Uh, what are the lessons of, of Sergio's life? And we can talk about any one of these missions at, at length here. Um, but I'd just like to just uh, close with a d- discussion briefly of four of what I, I take to be the lessons of, of Sergio's life. And, and many of them have um, implications for American foreign policy. And some may sound a little familiar um, to the views of a certain presidential candidate um, that I support. Um, uh, one is um, on this question of who you talk to and how you talk to them. Um, Sergio, over the course of this education of this idealist, of this Machiavellian idealist, um, uh, had a lot of different approaches to the question of engagement with harm doers or with evil uh, in the parlance of today. Um, I mentioned already the incident in Israel where he stormed up to the 
um, uh, the tank commander. He would do the same thing to Palestinians who were using the UN buffer as a um, as a staging ground and so forth. Um, his his MO early on was denunciation. Um, <clears throat> he was always in the room, even from a very early stage. He always wanted to be in the room with spoilers or with people who were violating UN resolutions or international law. Um, but his MO was a little finger-wagging. Um, he changed. He did never use the word unacceptable again. And I think he went too far uh, in the other direction. He still always wanted to be in the room. But when he was with, for instance, the Khmer Rouge, or when he was with, with um, when I knew him, the Bosnian Serbs or Serbian President Slobodan Milosevic, um, he was hugely accommodating and actually very prone to check his principles and those very UN principles or international legal standards that had so attracted him to the UN in the first place, his temptation was to check them at the door. Indeed, um, in, in uh, Bosnia, he was so accommodating of Serb uh, uh, predilections, let's say, that he um, would tra- traipsed around Belgrade for about four hours trying to find the perfect painting for Slobodan Milosevic. Um, before his final meeting with him. Um, when he went to meet with the Bosnian Serb leader, Radovan Karadzic, knowing that Karadzic, this terrible militant extremist who was responsible for the siege of Sarajevo, where Sergio was living and actually dealing with the incoming, um, but Sergio, knowing that Karadzic was a psychiatrist, uh, went scavenging for, you know, what could he bring as a kind of door prize for Karadzic for his first meeting, and ended up tracking down a copy of the New York Review of Books that had a cover story on new thinking about psychoanalysis and presented that to Karadzic. And there's nothing wrong with door prizes, I don't think. But while in the room, uh, he, was, he, had, he became notorious in the 90s for tilting toward power and to some degree viewing UN missions um, in bad places, in violent places, as ends in themselves. Indeed, in the, in the Yugoslav context, he earned the nickname, it, it got so bad, his, his uh, ostensible Serb bias got so bad that he was known not as Sergio, but as Serbio. Um, which was not uh, a high water mark for him, but the massacres in Rwanda and those in Srebrenica in, in, in the UN mission there in the former Yugoslavia affected him deeply because what he saw in them was that actually there were occasions when actually having a UN mission on the ground um, sent by the member states of the UN um, uh, to ostensibly to protect civilians there were occasions when that could do more harm than good and this was a hugely um, jarring idea for him. The idea that if you sent peacekeepers into harm's way, that civilians in those countries would rely on those peacekeepers, would see the blue flag of the UN, and didn't know about the dualism, didn't know that it was the sum of its parts or the sum of the member states that comprise the institution, only thought that that fl- flag meant protection. So in Rwanda and in the Bosnian safe area of Srebrenica, civilians gathered, uh, congregated around the UN flag, And it turns out the peacekeepers were listening to their capitals, listening to their heads of state, their governments, uh, their politicians, their their publics. Um, And those, in the case of uh, Rwanda Belgians, in the case of Srebrenica Dutch peacekeepers, were not prepared uh, to risk their lives to protect civilians. And indeed, when the time came, basically opened up their gates and allowed the killers in to take the civilians away. Now, for Sergio, this was totally different. This was a, the idea that the UN could do more harm than good simply by being there. And again, he understood that it was the member states who were pulling the rug out from under civilians, but nonetheless, he also understood that civilians had come to rely on the promise of international protection, 
and that they were the people he had to think about going forward. From that point forward, he continued to believe in engagement, but he was much more prone uh, to bring his principles into the room, to hold people accountable if he had met again with the Khmer Rouge or, for instance, when he met with Muqtada al-Sadr in Iraq, um, not to simply black box what had gone on prior to the meeting, which had been his earlier disposition. So I think in this there is a lesson, which is um, to, to take uh, Yitzhak Rabin's great lesson that you don't make peace uh, with your friends. That's not what you need to do. They're already your friends. Although in the case of the United States, we might need to make peace first with our friends in the next administration and then uh, make our way to our uh, alleged foes. But the idea of being in the room to know who it is you're dealing with, to learn as much as you can, to extract as much as you can, to change the impression of people outside the room, of you and of the person you're, or entity you're dealing with, um, but also not to give the farm away. And, and so somehow by the end of Sergio's life, I think he had struck something resembling a balance, but it's, again, everything is case-specific, and um, I'm sure people would criticize going in both directions where he ended up, but it was much more conscious of the costs of accommodation and, and of appeasement even. The second point um, is uh, a, both a micro point and a macro point um, uh, that I take away from surgery, and it may in some ways be the most important. And that is, um, uh, if I had to define a, a kind of Sergio doctrine uh, that evolved over time, it would be not an attention to democracy promotion, not uh, a human rights ideology, or even a humanitarian imperative, but actually an emphasis on, on one thing that is often, that usually goes unspoken in, in the realm of international politics, and that's dignity. Um, at a micro level, even when Sergio was known as Serbio uh, in the former Yugoslavia, he, was, he had an amazing ability and a truly unusual ability to see individuals around him uh, as the human beings that they were. This, again, may sound very, very cheesy and very banal, but you'd be amazed the number of people who speak out in the name of human rights and don't even see the humans in front of them, hardly ever disaggregate the human in humanitarian or in human rights. So at the very time, he's, I think, arguably tilting way too much toward the Serb side as a way of keeping the UN peacekeeping mission in the former Yugoslavia. Um, he is actually smuggling citizens in need of, uh, neighbors of his in need of medical care out of Sarajevo in the backseat of his car, breaking all of the UN rules to try to get them out of this besieged capital. When he's in Iraq, he's wiring uh, financial payments, literally from his office in Iraq, uh, via his office in Iraq, to East Timor, so his cleaning lady from East Timor can continue to put her uh, girls uh, through high school. Um, he almost never got individuals around him wrong, even when he got the macro, I think, a little bit off uh, on occasion. Now, the one place that this perhaps uh, claim does not apply is, is to his immediate family, which is also uh, not uh, unusual in, in the realm of great men or international diplomacy, probably great women too, I don't know. But, um, but the, 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 these standards that he brought to individuals, I think the only place they, they arguably didn't apply would have been to his wife and his two kids, who he was hardly ever with over the course of his um, career in violent places. Now, this is all very interesting. He's a nice guy, so what? Um, I think he took this doctrine of dignity, as it were, at a micro level uh, up to his understanding of what um, UN missions needed to be, what statecraft needed to be. And just to give you an example of this and how it had bearing on his dealings with Bremer in Iraq, um, what he came to understand, perhaps also as a Brazilian, 
who was used to being talked down to by people from powerful countries, certainly as a UN official who was used to being talked down to by people from this country, um, uh, he began to see that in East Timor, just the fact that he was there under a UN mandate wasn't enough to make the people of East Timor feel like they were living in dignity. And indeed, the one he was, he was arguably a little bit late to, to have this realization, but the one way that they would feel dignity is if they were actually determining their own fates. So instead of actually hoarding the absolute power that he had been given, and his mandate was to run two and a half years in the end, he began to hemorrhage that power, understanding also, as the Machiavellian that he was, that if you, if you keep the power to yourselves, you're, all, you're, you're also going to keep the blame. Now, when he went to Bremer and he began to explain, look, I was in East Timor, this little island. It was nothing near as complicated as what you're dealing with here in Iraq. I had a UN Security Council mandate. I had the UN flag. The UN had just helped with a referendum for the Timorese. And they couldn't stand me within two months. If that was me and those were my circumstances, just think what you're going to be dealing with here. You've got to think about, again, their humiliation um, and their need to sort of restore and retrieve their dignity. I think this dignity idea can also be a check on the worst of democracy promotion. And by the worst, I don't mean hypocritical democracy promotion where you're talking about promoting democracy but aren't actually promoting it. But in fact, even when you're serious about democracy promotion initiatives, we do it in such a way often where we're talking down to the people in whose name we're allegedly promoting self-determination. So we're saying we have the ideas for how yourself should determine. Um, I think and dignity also has bearing on how we think about refugee camps and humanitarian successes, like Darfur, where we've spent $3 billion on those camps. To, to think in terms of dignity is to think beyond actually keeping people alive, but thinking more about what a real life um, and a dignified life for them will mean. Two final points, very briefly. Um, uh, and third, now beyond talk to everybody, but in a certain way, and then the dignity point. Third point is that Sergio went into uh, these broken places over this 34-year career. And again, he had a 34-year head start thinking about the very challenges, I think, that are lying on the horizon for us as a country. But he went in with a huge amount of humility, um, but certainly by the end of his career. Uh, not so much about himself. I think he thought very highly of himself but about the complexity of what it was that he was being handed and, and the complexity, the sheer uh, difficulty of, of actually moving the boulder up the hill in some of these places. I mean, if it came to the point where a UN mission was being deployed or where atrocity had just occurred or where you were getting rid of a dictator and, and replacing it with another structure, something was really deeply off and rotten often uh, in these countries. So one of the, the lessons... I think as we go forward in the world, is somehow a lesson about how you go into a place far more cognizant of the complexity and the difficulty without being paralyzed by that. And, and this, in, in our country today, I think among progressives especially, after not only Iraq, but Iraq and Katrina, um, there's a huge uh, crisis of competence, crisis of confidence about competence. Um, and I think this question of, of how you engage far more mindful of how hard it is and how long it will take and, and how important it is to be curious about the circumstances of the people, uh, again, in whose name you're, you're active. Um, doing all of that, being aware of all that complexity without being um, immobilized by it. I think this is a, a balancing act that, again, Sergio had struck by the end and I think we can learn from. And then the fourth and, and final point, and this will echo, again, um, some of the words of my favorite presidential candidate, but... Um, Sergio uh, 
was incredibly frustrated at the degree to which the people he encountered in these broken places, um, and at the end of his life, the people even in Western societies, developed societies, but the degree to which they were living in fear. And he was frustrated both because of the unpleasantness that that meant and the lack of dignity and so forth that people felt who were living in fear, where when you, you know, even in a, a developing country like Kenya, you pull up to a stoplight and a policeman pulls you over and says, I'd like $100 and then you can move on. I mean, the fact, the degree to which police uh, are a tool of um, often corruption or repression rather than a tool of rights enforcement. Um, but in peacekeeping missions in particular, where there is a big void, a security void, in the aftermath of one regime and before the onset of another. So seeing that policing void, that security void, and understanding it both as a humanitarian threat and challenge, but also as a strategic one, he would see that on the one hand, but he also saw that it wasn't just an issue of the human condition. It was that people who lived in fear made bad decisions. One of my favorite lines of Sergio's, it's one of the titles of one of, a title of one of the chapters in the book is, fear is a bad advisor. And, and I think what we've seen in this country as well is when fears are stoked and they're not calibrated to the very genuine threats or challenges that exist out there, we make bad decisions, we lunge, and we undertake policies that are themselves counterproductive. So somehow figuring out how to bring this, I think, embrace, uh, sort of embrace the complexity, uh, understand the importance of dignity, and not either be paralyzed by our worthy humility and nor um, be uh, sort of biased or clouded by our fear. To me, those are the lessons of Sergio's life that I, that, that I take forward and I think about in the context of foreign policy. So why don't I leave it there? And um, those of you who've been very patiently listening to me talk about Sergio and have no interest but actually came to talk about Obama can now ask your questions. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. Great. Um, there's, I think, microphones in both places, and just step up and make a line, and I'll take as many questions as we can. Yes, yeah, so this question is actually about the UN Genocide Convention that another of your heroes, Raphael Lemkin, promulgated in 1948, and that we finally acceded to in the, in the Reagan administration in the 80s. I think a lot of it because of the faux pas at Bitburg. Uh, paradoxically, it, it would seem that because that mandates or at least implies that there is to be action against the perpetrators of genocide, that our leaders are, are less likely to speak out against genocide because of that, because uh, it has no traction with them, because it, it, it may legally uh, <coughs> uh, 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 mandate that we do something. Uh, do, do you agree with that? Um, you know, I, I think that there... there um there was, I mean, it, it, it varies, is the short answer. In the Clinton years, for sure, I mean, the documentary record shows both during Rwanda and during Bosnia that there was a great trepidation about using the word for fear of triggering all of these legal obligations. Um, but even in those meetings, uh, the notes and, and the reflections of people in those meetings show that you always had a lawyer there saying, no, actually, come on, it's a, it's a piece of international law. It obliges signatories to take steps to prevent and punish the crime. It doesn't say what steps. Indeed, by saying genocide, that's a step. <laughs> Maybe we've dispensed with our obligation simply by saying it's a genocide. Um, uh, but I think one of the effects of the reflection that has gone on since the Rwanda genocide in this country, which is now, you know, whatever, almost 14 years ago, 
Um, one of the, the, the aspects of the reflection has been on this fact, right, that the Clinton administration, not only did they not intervene to stop the genocide in Rwanda, not only did they insist that UN peacekeepers be withdrawn from Rwanda, but they wouldn't even use the word. That has had, a, I think, a profound effect, actually, on U.S. bureaucrats and um, even politicians, such that when Darfur uh, began in April 2003, it did not take long um, before uh, the Congress or outspoken members of the Congress who cared about what was going on in Sudan, Frank Wolf, Sam Brownback, um, Dick Durbin, and others, Obama subsequently, but, but at that time those guys, put in place uh, a resolution calling the violence genocide. That resolution uh, was passed in the summer of 2004. Colin Powell then, of course, as you know from your question, clearly have deep knowledge of this, in September 2004, went before the Congress and issued the first ever formal genocide finding by a sitting Secretary of State. President Bush uses the word genocide like it's going out of style. Um, um, and I actually think, in, in, in a perverse way, the wrong lesson, well, unsurprisingly, but the, the wrong lesson was learned or, or, uh, or a very superficial lesson was learned. The, the reason one would have liked to have seen the Clinton administration use the word genocide uh, during the Rwanda uh, horrors was uh, twofold. One, potentially it would have been a deterrent. Maybe it would have had, it's a stigma. Maybe perpetrators would have felt, you know, that there was a stigma attached to what it was they were doing instead of the noble story they told themselves about purging cockroaches. Maybe they would have thought that some kind of um, punishment and so forth would have been forthcoming because of the resonance with Nuremberg and, and other things. Who knows? But moreover, when you call something a genocide versus a civil war, it's actually an important diagnostic. It makes you have some sense also of the, the particular nature of the violence underway, that there is some group of individuals who are setting, however large that number, but setting out to systematically exterminate. Um, uh, it, it, there's, I don't want to say there's a predictive force to it, but what there is is a diagnostic force. And as you're tailoring your policy tools, it's worth knowing whether it's a tribal upheaval or a top-down genocide uh, sophisticated in the way the Rwanda genocide was, at least in terms of planning and orchestration. It also you know, lends itself, forgive the graphic of this, but the, uh, to a more of a decapitation strategy where you're actually getting rid of, you know, uh, or neutralizing somehow the leaders of the genocide. Whereas if you have this idea that these tribal demons have been unleashed, it's a hell of a lot more terrifying to imagine some kind of scenario by which you know you can neutralize. You think about it, it's just everywhere. If you if you you know cut the head off this monster here, then there's another head and something. In any event, um, so so the reason to use it is both potentially that it is a constructive policy tool in its own right, but also that it enables subsequent policy choices that are more grounded in the precise nature of the violence underway. In the Darfur context, instead of the use of the word genocide becoming a trigger for subsequent policy reflections and policies that are tailored around the precise nature of the Sudanese government teaming up with the Janjaweed in order to destroy in whole or in substantial part uh, you know, the non-Arab um, uh, population of Darfur, instead of that being the conversation, the use of the word genocide became a substitute for policy or it became the policy itself. In other words, for a year after the declaration, when we would go to the administration and advocate and call for this or that or the other, they'd say, but what do you want? We already called it genocide. You know, the Clinton administration didn't even do that. <laughs> and so this sort of um, weird hierarchy of um, kind of comparative 
um, insufficient responses to genocide where you actually see now an administration taking pride in, in simple nomenclature without at all understanding that nomenclature, again, was to be the in, in principle, sure, could have an effect at the margins initially, potentially on the on the perpetrators. Although that's harder to do in a more multipolar world uh, today, because China, you know, uh, was abetting Sudan in a range of reasons. So the the idea that a mere word would somehow cause the Sudanese government to say, "Oh my God, they called it genocide. Let's now, you know, stop killing non-Arabs." That was more of a stretch. Um, it may have always been a stretch. But that it wouldn't then give rise to the kind of urgency that one imagined the use of the word would give rise to in the planning process and so forth has been the biggest disappointment. And now I don't think, I don't think any subsequent administration is going to have. I mean, if they think it's a genocide, I think they'll, they'll probably do a cold, calculating legal analysis, see if they think the term applies. Um, I, I think the term, in a sense, by using it so often and doing so little to stop it. Um, just means that, that whatever that little footstep effect that there was during the Clinton years will have faded now, and you'll see the term used more often, and, and it's a separate conversation about how you'll see the, re- the actual policy response uh, change. Yes? Um, I want to ask a question about the consequence of the last seven, almost eight years of Bush foreign policy. And I guess it's a question that I ask in your capacity is, Somebody who might have a little insight as to what an Obama administration might look like, but just to keep it on topic, maybe I can ask uh, for you to think about it as Sergio might. And the question really is whether the way back from the uh, bottom of the well, which we may be in, um, as far as American foreign policy as a legacy of Iraq and other things, uh, is to charge boldly in a John F. Kennedy kind of spirit towards saying this is the best America has stood for and we want to announce to the world stage in the years ahead that America is back in a very positive way, um, or whether it really is a little bit the lesson of Sergio, and I think you alluded to it in your talk this evening, about treading really lightly mm-hmm. and saying, yeah, we're coming back, but this is a multipolar world. This isn't, uh, and, and that calls for a different kind of uh, return, I suppose, to some ideals that mm-hmm. you might uh, think were, were going to put us in better shape than uh, the last seven or eight years. It's mm-hmm. a great question. Um, the reason it's a great question is he's a former student of mine from the Kennedy School, so he learned to ask great questions. No, just, just kidding. He is a former student of mine, but he asked great questions before he became a student of mine, sadly. They got worse, in fact, in my class. Um, Thank, thanks, Professor. <laughs> uh, it, you know, it's really a terrific question. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, we were talking about this a little bit just at, at, um, before coming over here. Um, imagining the, the, the tide that Obama... If he wins, right, he'll be, the way he will win will be to continue to ride this tide. And the tide is not just a domestic tide that has young people coming out in spades and um, African Americans voting in numbers they've not voted before and independent Republicans actually, you know, joining the four. But it's also one that has President Bush in the one continent, that, on the one continent that he's actually popular on, literally unable to speak at a microphone where he's announcing a new initiative for Tanzania because the crowd is chanting, Obama, 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 and Bush is like, oh, but, you know, what about me? I've come a long way. Um, and, uh, and he was announcing, again, a very generous, I mean, furthering this, I think, very important AIDS initiative that he's launched, but, but announcing uh, an increase in that. Also, Mark, you'll appreciate, I have a friend who just came back from uh, Burma. To me, this is the most striking example of what we know to be true about the Obama effect uh, to date, and that's even before imagining a presidency. But um, 
She was just back from Burma, and she's a great human rights advocate, but a very controversial, not somebody who can get into Burma the, the old-fashioned way uh, through the airport. Um, and she had come overland. I, I saw her at an event, and she just came up to her. I hadn't seen her in 10 years. I knew she'd been doing this great work in Burma. I said, how are you? you, know, what are you how did you get out? And she said, oh, I went over the mountains. And she told me the whole thing. And I was like, wow, what are you doing here at this event? And, uh, and she said, I just had to tell you, she said, all anybody can talk about in the most closed society. Maybe only North Korea is more closed, but it is closed in Burma, I mean, the mountain route. Um, every monk, every junta official, every farmer, all they can talk about is Obama, right? So there are two ways you can react to this. One is to say, I mean, that's Burma, right? This was so amazing to hear. And, and uh, Obama, of course, is you know, in his LeBron James mode now, was thrilled that in Burma, you know, he's got this constituency locked up. Um, <laughs> just confirming his mounting, you know, we call it the Iowa head. None of us can get Iowa heads, you know, the big heads or whatever. But, um, but the, um, you know, that can lead, I think, to in, a, in a couple different directions. And, and uh, I mean, one is to your first strategy, right, where you've got this wind, you've got this tide, however you want to look at it, and you ride it, and you, um, you do the, we were talking earlier, you, you close Guantanamo, you've got bold um, initiative, I think rooted actually not in democracy promotion, because I think it's going to take time to uh, rehabilitate that concept, um, but perhaps a major rule of law initiative or some kind of development initiative, um, uh, you know, HIV, AIDS, malaria, something tangible, not hugely political, not seen, um, I mean, so law is tricky because until we've, again, renounced rendition and, and cleaned up the detention facilities and so forth, there's, even an Obama is going to be subjected to charges of, which are familiar, they're not new um, uh, to the Bush administration. But um, So, so you, I, I think that what, what we've seen is that deeds are the most important part of this. And I guess that's what I'm getting at, is I think that the bold deeds, as distinct from... Um, simply anyway, the grand words. I think you can have words, grand words, about what we as a global community can do together. Some of the same stuff that has made him appealing here at home, that sense that we're all, we all have a part in this. Um, but anything that's sort of bilaterally talking at people about what they should do, um, which I think will come in an Obama administration. I mean, there, the difficult conversations about what the European troop commitments to Afghanistan are going to be are going to come. But I don't think at the beginning um, uh, necessarily that, you know, I mean, I, I think that to think that he, we were talking earlier, Michael McFall and I, about um, the, this idea of whether there'd be a honeymoon. And I don't, uh, I guess I don't, I, I, I certainly see a huge ripeness for him to come to the Brandenburg Gate or to come, you know, to um, Cape Town or, or Joburg or wherever, and to come to back to, to go back to Indonesia or to go to Beijing. I mean, you can imagine the the hunger for all of the vitriol of the anti-Americans. Obama makes this point himself, which is that even the vitriol or the level of feeling around it, the anger, is itself the product of that disappointment that still exists in the world. Right. So in that disappointment lies the hope that you still have these expectations for America that Obama can walk into, but. But I think it's going to be. In, I think people are quite skeptical um, about uh, the United States as a whole, uh, as a structure. I think every primary Obama wins, or for that matter, even Hillary Clinton's success, but especially Obama, is itself kind of chips away at what happened in November 2004. I mean, 
whatever happened between 2000 and 2004, you still, if you traveled abroad, you would hear a lot about, well, I, you know, I, I don't like George Bush, but the American people, I still like American culture. November 2004, they're like, America stinks. <laughs> you know, like, it's the same. You know, they, they, not everybody, of course, but they uh, tended to throw people together. And I think what this election has been about so far is, is chipping away at that again and, and creating some distance between the administration. The, the 2006 election did this too. But the, sh- the, the sort of sense of astonishment that our country and the kinds of places, I mean, they're so into the inside baseball of this election. I mean, I'm talking to people uh, in, in East Timor about superdelegates. <laughs> like, <laughs> what? <laughs> um, I'm not kidding. I mean, they just, their president, Sergio's great friend, Josie Ramos Horta, was just shot, and they want, they, you know, they want to talk about that a little bit, but they also want to talk about superdelegates. Are the superdelegates, are they going to go with the popular vote? Are they going to, you know, I'm like, what is going on? So, so I think there's going to be, you know, he's going to have a little bit of a grace period, I guess I would say, maybe, Michael, more than a honeymoon. And, but it's a grace period in which they're going to want to see, you know, the, the deliverables. And, and um, if you look at the response to the tsunami in Indonesia or the response to the earthquake in Pakistan, when we deliver, public opinion can turn quite quickly. Um, what do we do when we show up at the UN the first time? What will that speech you know, look like. Um, I mean, it just whether it's the UN or someplace else, the UN happens to be the place where, again, where all the member states of the world are gathered. What will that first September 2009 General Assembly speech be? I mean, that's an incredible opportunity. Maybe he'll do one, but maybe there'll be some forum in which he can do one far earlier than that. What will the tour of the Islamic world, the listening tour, look like? Will it be listening? Will they perceive it to be listening? Will that be perceived then to be giving too much away and other, you know, at home? I mean, this question of how he, I apologize for thinking out loud, but how he, how he straddles the, the, the he, he's a 21st century guy in every way. He's acutely aware that every statement he makes not only is something that has to be scrubbed to think about for domestic audiences, but is also beamed directly to the rest of the world in this globalized age. And, and this dualism how do, you, how do you walk that line? Because what the, the rest of the world wants in the way of Willie Brandt falling on one knee um, you know, to, to kind of distance himself from, from the, the, you know, the crimes of the past or the sins of the past, that is so at odds with maintaining that independent, republican, democratic coalition that you're going to need to get out of Iraq and to get out of Afghanistan and so forth. So suffice it to say, this is on everyone's mind, but I think, I think deliverables and, and a real conscientiousness about tone, listening, solicitude, to try to expand that grace period as long as possible, because keep in mind that he'll be inheriting two live wars. Two live wars, one of which you know, he'll be trying to pull U.S. troops out of, which is not going to be pretty, either domestically in terms of the, the pushback uh, or potentially you know, in Iraq itself, um, and trying to then have the adult conversation about Afghanistan with European countries that want to get out. I mean, so he's got, <laughs> he, you know, I mean, half the time when, 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 when things have been going well of late, you know, I, half the time I'm like, I can't, this is incredible. Wow, Obama. And then I'm like, oh, man, Obama. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I mean, he doesn't think that way, luckily. Anyway, thank you. Um, I'm with a group from Stanford that just received some funding to go and campaign in Texas, and we're leaving on Friday, actually. Um, I was, I've been thinking a lot about how I would best articulate my support for him, particularly in foreign policy, and you seem very articulate. I was wondering um, what advice you would have for us in terms of 
just a short statement to present to an undecided Texas well, Now you've hit my weak spot. You can say, like, articulate <laughs> may be short, <laughs> not my strong suit. Um, in terms of his foreign policy and why he'd make the best commander-in-chief, um, well, part of it is, um, of course, rooted in just the, the mere signal that him showing up um, sends, of course, to the rest of the world. This may seem a little bit shallow, but in a world where most of the challenges, in fact, are global challenges and require countries coming together, the ability to restore our respect in the world um, is not one that, that we need to acquire simply for good feeling, but it's we need to have the respect of other countries in order to get them to join us in tackling common problems. So whether it's his biography as somebody who's half Kenyan and half Kansan, the fact that he's lived in the developing world, the fact that he is an African-American and that that's its own symbol of America's um, uh, evolution, let's say, on issues of great pain, and civil rights issues are painful here, they're painful in many other countries abroad. He starts, I think, he, he's the one person who gives the United States a second chance to make a first impression. Um, second, the fact that he opposed the war in Iraq um, is, again, something that you could say, okay, well, that's a window into his judgment. But more than that, that gives him the ability to go to other countries and to say, because virtually every country on the earth opposed the war in Iraq, other than our few coalition partners, and even there, their publics oppose the war in Iraq. But to say to those countries and those publics, I, like you, oppose this war. Um, I, like you, thought it was a dumb war, a rash war, a war of unforeseen consequences. Now, do you want to continue to cry over spilled milk, or do you want to actually help me think about what a massive Middle Eastern refugee initiative is going to look like? I'm putting up $2 billion. What, yes, you can... It's our fault. <laughs> we did it, okay? We invaded, we let, but, but we all, this is a colossal humanitarian and strategic crisis now that you have two and a half million people, you know, spilling over into neighboring countries, that you have two million people displaced. So it's not just his biographical credibility, it is also actually tangibly that he's untainted by association with one of the great um, tragedies and calamities of recent American foreign policy history. Um, the other thing I would say is that his experience, which is oft talked about, of course, in skeptical ways in this country, but is something that might really appeal to people um, uh, abroad and, and certainly, I think, is a skill set that uh, equips him for 21st century challenges. The fact that he was a community organizer and worked in broken places. If you think ahead to where, again, these challenges lie, the kinds of places Sergio worked in, they are places where people are making decisions about whether to go to school or whether to join a gang. You know, what are you going to, whether to join, in effect, an extremist organization or whether to remain in the mainstream. These kinds of incentives, the fact that he has dirt under his fingernails and has thought uh, about brokenness in the closest thing we have to failing states in this country, which are America's failing cities, I, I think that's not incidental experience. The fact that he is a constitutional lawyer. Um, and has studied not only periods in our history where we've had to agonize over balancing liberty and security, but also has studied those moments where we've gotten it wrong and then self-corrected. This is a really important understanding of, of something that's going to be central to our ability to project our values abroad um, and maintain our security at home. So uh, couple that with you know, what he's done on nuclear terrorism uh, as a U.S. senator, and again, already the kinds of um, dividend he's, he's, he's um, 
sort of uh, reaped for the United States in terms of our credibility simply by getting this far in the election. But as you can tell, again, brevity, not my strong suit. <laughs> yeah. Well, that Stanford Law School let you slip out of our grasp as Harvard's gain and our loss. Um, <laughs> no, not the law school. I didn't apply to the law school. I got dissed by the undergrad. Oh, well. I didn't, I didn't even apply to the law school. I was still sour. <laughs> so we're off the hook. So I, in your beautiful biography of Sergio, you've really given uh, a history of someone who's gone from seeing the role of the United Nations as handing out grain yeah. to um, almost having an epiphany and thinking that maybe some form of military intervention may sometimes be necessary. Mm -hmm. So I wonder what your reflections are now on the policy of the responsibility to, to protect, which Kofi Annan embraced after the International Crisis Group first coined that term in 2001. And yet now, in 2008, with um, apparently the United Nations not having the, 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 the lifting power to bring mm. the disparate nation-states of the world together on the one hand, uh, so we don't have an international organisation that is able to execute uh, what seems to be a sensible policy. Uh, on the other hand, we don't have unilateral intervention uh, um, fragrant anymore after the, um, after the failed intervention in Iraq and the unfortunate, uh, I think probably medium or long-term effect this will have on democracy promotion as an idea. And on the third hand, we have regional forces like the African Union uh, failing when they go into Sudan. So we don't seem to have either nation states who are willing or credible to intervene. The international institution of the United Nations doesn't have the lifting power and regional organisations like the African Union and the European Union are either unwilling or unable <coughs> to pull their collective mm -hmm. aggregate military forces together. So what's the future of the responsibility to protect as a policy uh, if there's no institutional ability to execute it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that your three hands are all kind of rooted in the same torso, let's say, or whatever, um, in that whatever the institutional form is that you're looking at, um, whether unilateral, truly global in the form of the UN or AU or any other regional body, what you're basing, basically looking at are, and this is what I started the talk with, kind of anyway, um, are a whole, are gatherings of states where the states at a 2005 General Assembly summit or whatever wanted to proclaim the responsibility, but none of those states, or very few of those states, actually want to exercise the responsibility. And until you get at costs and benefits inside particular political cultures, whether the Chinese political culture and you know getting the idea of responsibility instead of rights, perhaps, as something that they can embrace as part of being a new global citizen and kind of corollary to their geopolitical assertiveness, which has now come along with their economic assertiveness and, and explosiveness. Um, or whether one is talking about um, you know, particular African countries 
who talk about an African renaissance but, um, and are pretty good now at not allowing fellow Africans to steal elections, although Kabaki is a bit of a footnote to that, but um, certainly not to stage coups. The African Union, you know, again, the, the countries of, who comprise the African Union at a certain point decided that that was a norm that they were going to observe. They were not, you know, within South Africa, within Nigeria, within Rwanda. When they got to the African Union, they were going to bring their aversion to military coups. And that then, within the African Union, was going to take the form of a relative consensus whenever someone tried to uh, wage a coup, and then coups were going to be stopped. I mean, knock on wood that this will continue to be the norm that is observed there. But those same countries that comprise the African Union or when they're wearing their other hats that comprise the United Nations, don't have that same relationship to atrocity. They just don't. Um, um, whether it's uh, a residual regard for sovereignty and skepticism about Western or particularly American rhetoric these days, but Western rhetoric in general, or um, whether it's just that they, you know, they, they don't have an economic, a national security, or a domestic political interest to be that concerned about what's going on in Sudan. In other words, it's not about their own sort of self-interest cutting against doing something, but it's simply that they have no major domestic interest for doing something. You know, I think it depends on the country which of those two things it is, and it depends on the particular moment. But if this norm is to be enforced, uh, countries are going to have to feel that it is, in fact, their responsibility. That is, we have to move away from the so-called international communities responsibility to protect and uh, get that community, such as it is, um, dysfunctional as it is right now, but disaggregated into its component parts. And the, the trouble with, <laughs> I almost called my last book, the trouble with genocide, um, but in this instance, the trouble with George Bush or the trouble with this period where the United States is such a fat target um, and has, a, you know, um, in some ways, I mean, both has constituted an alibi, uh, I think, for countries that themselves have their own reasons for not getting involved in these kinds of peacekeeping roles or putting their troops in harm's way, have their own domestic political debates. I mean, take the demilitarization of Europe, for instance, right? I mean, that's a whole phenomenon that was existing apart from the advent of George Bush. So you have that where they're just kind of using Bush and the specter of Iraq to not do what they wouldn't have wanted to do anyway, I mean, see the Balkans back in the 90s, a real ambivalence even in their own backyard, although, again, there were peacekeepers who were there. But then you have also Bush and the fact that countries really do want to pretty much do the opposite of whatever he wants to see done. Um, and and they, there's a real political price, as what Steve was saying earlier, Stedman, there's a political price for a lot of governments to be seen to be partnering with Bush on anything. So the fact that Bush has owned Darfur in the eyes of some, has done Darfur a great disservice because the U.S. was never going to be the country that sent its troops to Darfur, but by it being something that Bush you know, uh, took strong leadership on, it made it arguably less likely that countries would be willing um, to put their troops in harm's way. Again, one of the many, many reasons for wishing for an Obama presidency for me is the possibility that somebody untainted with, by the association with the war in Iraq can go to Europe or to South Africa or to Japan or wherever um, and both talk directly to governments about global responsibilities like this one but also talk around governments and talk to citizens in those countries. This, we can't put all this on Barack Obama's shoulders, God knows. But um, 
there is a void right now in the international system where U.S. leadership is tainted, but you're not seeing anybody exactly jockeying for the role of, underst- of, of mobilizing, summoning resources at a, at a time of a crisis. And it really comes back to either democracies or even or developing countries or whatever, themselves orienting them, I mean, themselves deciding that they want to be part of this architecture, that they want to be part of this response mechanism, or the United States come and other countries, richer countries coming along and incentivizing that participation. I mean, there's already an apartheid in peacekeeping where rich countries pay for it and poor countries do it. Um, but I would like to see that redressed, and, and I would hope um, you know, that middle powers who have much more sophisticated armies, or at least did, and certainly more sophisticated police forces and so forth, could be engaged by a compelling leader in the project of patrolling the commons or civilian protection or however one wants to frame it. And maybe when the United States is giving something up, it will be in a stronger position to get something back. The worry would be that we would attempt to have that conversation and sort of start asking things of countries without ourselves actually putting anything in the bank uh, in the way of international law adherence or... Um, you know, uh, finances or, you know, even minor dents in our sovereignty, of course, are going to be hard in terms of the domestic political debate because I'm not sure we're yet, we've adjusted in those ways. Um, I was in Cuba in 2002 and I was only there for six days, but that visit stuck with me and and will stick with me because it's such a unique place. Um, For better or for worse, it's an incredibly unique country and system there and, um, with all the news in the last week and changes in Cuba, um, I've just been thinking about it a lot, and I'm wondering what your thoughts are on the differences between Fidel and Raul and what it means for the country and also for our relationship to it, both within the Bush administration and um, what our relationship should be to Cuba in the next administration. Great. You know what I'll do, is because I need to discipline myself, the uh, long-winded speaker, is actually just take these three questions at once and then and then respond to them if I could. So, so I was going to yes, ask. Your, your question. Um, yeah. You know, given the UN's own unfortunate history, you know, this sort of the last really charismatic leader of the or you know, within the UN who passed away unfortunately was Doc Amersgold. You know, almost forty years ago or so, mm. or so right now. You know, and after that happened, the UN really pulled back from a lot of things it was doing. You know, it ceased to be uh, trying to have any kind of military action and really went into a shell. You know, for quite some time until arguably the last 10 years or so. Do you think that uh, Sergio, or what do you think will be the impact of Sergio's death on the institution going forward? Great. Yep. So early on you were talking about the kind of outdated statist 19th century solutions to international problems and focusing on the Balkans. I thought it was really striking how you saw in Kosovo these people celebrating independence with the Bosnian flags, I believe, hmm. is what I was seeing people carrying. While in northern Kosovo, you have the situation where it's de facto ruled by the Serbians. And you kind of get this impression that Kosovo is an artificial construct. So I was wondering what your view was on how the kind of sanctity of the nation state and these artificial boundaries affects the perception or hinders or helps international solutions. Great. Um, yeah, yeah, no, that is, that's a very, very good point. Yeah, because in, in some ways, Kosovo, maybe I'll answer that one first, but um, it's, on the one hand, it's uh, 
evidence of a state being broken up, right, insofar as it's the state of Serbia and Kosovo being a province of Serbia, at least for uh, the last um, few decades and complicated history uh, prior to the Second World War. But um, um, so on the one hand, it's, it's uh, a knock on statism, but like you're suggesting, we still, you know, we, 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 we're looking at the provincial boundaries and calling it a state rather than asking questions about whether, for instance, part of northern Kosovo could have been carved up and given to Serbia proper. And so the really revolutionary, I don't want to call it a 21st century thing to do because I don't think getting into the habit of breaking things up is a great idea, even as, as, as much as I think we need to be more sophisticated in thinking about non-state actors. Um, but, but arguably the revolutionary thing to, do, to have done would have been not only to break up Serbia, but to break up Kosovo. Um, and I think they felt like that was a bridge too far and that as, 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 as big a danger as there was of creating a kind of contagion effect around, for autonomous movements, autonomy movements elsewhere in the world, that if you did that, then you'd, you know, there'd be, that no boundary would be one. And there's a great um, Macedonian uh, satirist, actually, years ago named um, Gligorov, who, who came up with the expression during the Balkan Wars, I never forget, but it was, um, why should we be a minority in your state when you can be a minority in ours? Um, and that kind of summed up you know, the way people began to approach, and you can imagine ad absurdum what that would, would yield. Um, all I will say, I think, is that um, really one of the biggest mistakes on Kosovo, this is not helpful for today exactly, but was made back in 1999. Um, I, I supported the intervention there because I thought Milosevic was, doing, uh, was intent on doing ever worse things to the ethnic Albanians as he began to lose his grip on the Serbian people. His way was always to try to distract them from their own fates um, by invoking Kosovo. You'll notice that that's exactly what Kustanica is doing uh, today. Um, but uh, in the wake of the NATO intervention, uh, the way to unite the powers on the Security Council, um, or at least the, the, the way that was seen to unite them, to bring Russia back into the fold, who was so unhappy with the Clinton administration, was to kick the can down the road and to put Kosovo under international occupation. Had there not been violence in, in Serbia this month, I think it's very, very likely there would have been much more significant violence in Kosovo um, uh, by ethnic Albanians who were tired of being occupied by the United Nations, which again to our eyes may look like a benevolent, you know, relatively impartial outside force, but if you've been waiting to govern yourself, um, it, it was not a satisfactory arrangement. Um, so, I, But I think that Kosovo's fate right now um, and that of the Serbian minority lies as it has for so long with outside actors. So figuring out how to rein Putin in and, and ensure that this is just symbolic sort of posturing on his part and not something that's actually going to lead to greater violence. Um, how to uh, ensure that European monitors, in fact, do go to Kosovo and try to protect the Serbian minority. There's been a lot of rhetoric about that, but very little in the way of oper operationalization. And then generally, I, mean, I come from Ireland originally, some kind of long-range story and, and even um, timeline with benchmarks and so forth by which... Serbian integration can occur, Kosovar integration can occur, this is what happened with Northern Ireland, is that it, the Northern Ireland problem became less pervasive because both Ireland and England were in the European Union and the borders started to matter a lot less. Economic prosperity came both to the south of Ireland and later uh, to Northern Ireland. 
something like that will have to occur in Kosovo proper because the people who are burning down embassies, most of them are people who have never been to Kosovo. They've never thought of going to Kosovo. It's the last place on earth they want to go. But just as occurred in the early 90s, when there is economic despair, uh, nationalism and, and um, certainly violence and extremism become an outlet for people. And so while it looks like a diplomatic failure to have come to this point, I think it was, but I think it was a failure that was foreshadowed back in 1999, now the issue is what is the scenario by which two trains can run at once and there is, again, a, a plan for integration, even if it takes a decade or two uh, to bring about that result. Um, on Fidel and Raul, I mean, I'll just say that, um, speaking as myself, um, that, that I think that the, the, the policy of isolation has been um, you know, completely unconstructive. Um, I don't think it's brought about any uh, of the goals that, uh, that the United States had when it put in place the embargo. Um, um, it has only uh, caused a kind of reification of Castro, of Fidel Castro, in the eyes of um, people around the world. Um, I mean, in a way, Castro and Mugabe are very, very different, but, but getting Fidel uh, off the public stage may be helpful because even though Raul is clearly going to mimic his policies, um, he certainly is a pragmatist, but also he just doesn't have near the cachet either in South America, Latin America, um, uh, Southern Hemisphere, the developing world generally, or frankly in this country um, with the Cuban-American community. It just is not the, the idea of sitting down with Raul, I don't think, raises near the hackles. Um, uh, uh, and, and the idea of criticizing Raul doesn't raise near the hackles in the, in the other community that I was describing. So I think there's an opening here, um, uh, but you know, from Obama's position is tomorrow you would allow family travel, family remittances. You'd be prepared to sit down with anybody, begin a process of normalization, and and um, you know put carrots uh, on the table as well as sticks. And and I just think. The other fear, of course, is that as soon as Cuba opens up, the Starbucksification of the island will be its own, um, uh, not tragedy quite, but, but um, uh, something at least to, to think about. Um, but that's not a moral hazard for us to, to worry about. I just think it's when, when, when these negotiations are occurring, keeping in mind the sort of predatory uh, nature of a lot of the stakeholders um, with regard not only to Cuba but to other places that open up, I think is worth doing. And then finally... Sergio's death and what it has done to the UN. I think there's a double whammy here that you didn't have even with Hammerskjold. Um, first, you have the loss of this uh, kind of um, giant, really. I mean, unheralded giant in his, in his life. But when one looks at this wealth of experience and this receptacle of learning, it's just a huge technical loss. A guy who knew about reconstruction and transitional justice and policing um, uh, you know, economic development, uh, so many of the these elections, constitution drafting, just these skills that are not in uh, heavy supply. And it doesn't mean he knew he was an expert on any of them, but he knew who to call uh, if he wasn't an expert. So that loss is um, to, to lo- lose the person known as the go-to guy in the entire international system is a substantial loss. But then to couple that with the way he died and the fact that al-Qaeda would take aim at the United Nations, that has had a profound bearing on the way the UN uh, thinks about doing business in dangerous places. So there's a big debate, a very live debate, within the UN among field workers 
about how much risk to bear in service of your mission. And um, right now, you know, the balance is being struck differently, uh, mission to mission, um, but it's something the institution as a whole is grappling with. And again, prior to the attack on the Canal Hotel, UN officials didn't really see themselves as a natural target for al-Qaeda and, 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 and its kin, I guess you'd say. Um, so understanding how to be in the world is, is sort of separate. And I think Hammerskjöld, you know, uh, however he died or, or whatever happened with him, it was a loss of a leader. Um, um, I think he was, he was, the way he sort of danced between the great powers was hugely impressive. But I don't think he had in his brain or in his life the range of, of technical uh, stores of knowledge that Sergio had. Moreover, I don't think his death as a whole had bearing on the UN system and how it operated in dangerous places. So I think Sergio's loss is being felt much more gravely, both for his own personal reasons, but also institutionally because of what that particular attack now means going forward. And, you know, I think it's good, the, 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 nothing about the attack is good, but the the learning and the reflection on the UN's um, lack of uh, inoculation. I mean, and that's important to have that sort of adult conversation again about how to render the UN secure in dangerous places. But from the standpoint of field workers anyway, it can't become paralyzing, nor can it lead the UN to do what the United States does abroad, which is to build these fortress embassies and the fortress green zone where the people you're trying to help can't even get access to you. Um, so it's a very, very difficult transitional time, um, uh, and it would be one that Sergio would have, I think, great insight on how to shepherd the institution through. So it's, it's obviously a, a colossal loss. I'd like to end on happier notes than that, but perhaps that's a good place to uh, stop. Thank you. The preceding program is copyrighted by Stanford University. Please visit us at stanford.edu.